Welcome to Final Fantasy Weekly. I'm Drew Kreisman. And I'm Ira Kreisman. And on this episode, we'll be discussing the art and gameplay of Final Fantasy IV. The art was, of course, and still by Yoshitaka Amano, but the lead game design this time around is credited to Hiroyoku Ito, who also is the inventor of the Active Time Battle System, a system that still holds a special place in many hearts to this day, to the point that people are mad at modern games because they don't still have this system. That's how much people love it. Ira. Yeah. Can you explain to us what the active time battle system is? I believe I can. I'll start with what it isn't. In Final Fantasies 1, 2, and 3, the original versions anyway, and I'm pretty sure in the remakes, at the beginning of each round of combat, you would choose what your characters did, uh, and, and then between them and the enemies, depending on their speed, they would act in order. So if your characters, especially thieves and ninjas and the like, had a particularly good speed, they might act first. And uh, especially slow characters like Adamantoises and Behemoths might act last. And then the next round would come up, you would choose your actions, and it would happen all over again. But the active time battle system is different. I believe we mentioned on previous episodes that it was uh, at least inspired by race car racing. Race car racing? Is that how we say that? I believe they say race car driving. Again. There it is. <laughs> showing our expertise in this particular area. In the active time battle system, each character has a, a gauge. And that gauge slowly fills up, and it, it fills up dependent upon your character's speed. So when uh, the gauge is full, when that moment arrives, you will have access to that character's commands. Fight, defend, change rows, use an item, or whatever special commands they might have. And the same is true for the monsters. Uh, you don't see their gauges, but as their speed dictates, their invisible gauges fill up, and as soon as it uh, is full, they get to choose their actions, and their actions take place. And so it adds uh, an element of anticipation, an element of of worry. You know, is my character's gauge going to fill up fast enough for me to cast Cure on my character who's injured? Or, you know, I always know that my my fast characters are going to get to act first, so I need to start thinking now about what I'm going to do right when battle starts. It definitely makes battles feel frenetic and fast, and that was something that I think was important at the time because these games were known for, and still to some degree were thereafter and to this day, other than 15, are known for being the games where you stop and wait for things to hit you, and then you hit them, and you know they're kind of slow battles. It's more about the strategy that you put in there and this was the first time really where it wasn't just about strategy that you had to think quickly and that made battles feel like kind of like a real fight would you know out on an adventure that you, you, there's a sense of as you mentioned anxiety and and worry and pace about it <laughs> Something to note is that in Final Fantasies 4 and 5, when your character's moment came and you pressed the button to get into their menu, if you were searching for a spell or an item or something, it would pause the ATB. I'm, I'm almost entirely certain I'm correct about this. In Final Fantasy 6, that doesn't happen. You can be scrolling through your spells and your enemies can be taking their actions. But in Final Fantasy 4 and 5, if you're scrolling through your spells, 
the enemies won't take an action, so there was still some refinement of that system to come. Right. Another innovation of Final Fantasy IV is the save point. Before, you could just save on the overworld. That was pretty much it. But in Final Fantasy IV, throughout dungeons, sometimes before a big boss, uh, at right before critical moments, you there will be these save points. And in the U.S. version, like like in the in the normal Japanese version, they're just sort of these pillars of light. But in the U.S. version, there's a big S on it. <laughs> yeah, you know, just to make it safe. clear, right? Uh, this was also one of the first times that Final Fantasy, again in the West mostly, but would be criticized for making their games too easy and starting to take out the challenge. They, this was intended to do that for Western audiences, but it's funny because the save point was much maligned for a while, and when you go back now and you play games that have no save points, you're like, this is unnecessarily punishing. And, yeah. of course, yeah. anymore, it's a relic of the past now in pretty much any modern game. You can just save anywhere and everywhere. You know, you want to be able to save in, in the middle of a fight and then get on the bus and go to school or something. You know what I mean? That's a, an issue of technology, though, right? I think so. Because in, in older games, there was only so much uh, space for, for data to be saved, so it could only be done in certain spots. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's the reason why. Right. And this was before memory cards, which was a whole weird oh, God. era cards. in the history. Which of are now a relic. Yeah, again. Yeah, totally unnecessary. And rumble packs, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> a few more things I want to mention about the gameplay. The roster of Final Fantasy IV is, much like Final Fantasies two II and three and five to come, dictated by the storyline. So characters will enter and leave the party based upon storyline needs. That's the same thing that happened in 2 and 3, uh, and will happen again, uh, though only once, in 5. But I'm still, because Final Fantasy VI was such a big influence on how I understood Final Fantasy, I still compare Final Fantasy IV to Final Fantasy VI in this regard, because the characters are so well fleshed out, and because there are so many of them, I really expected Final Fantasy IV to have a point where it allowed you to choose which of these characters in this broad and diverse cast you, you might take with you on the last dungeon. And then, in the DS version, it does allow you to do that. Yeah, it's definitely one of those things that I prefer, as you mentioned, the six model. It's also widely believed that many of even the major plot points in this game were dictated by kind of a limit on the technology and or for whatever reason Hironobu Sakaguchi or the team's desire to get certain characters in and out of the party to make you use them whatever the reason was but that's widely believed though I don't believe ever confirmed the reason why there's so many sacrifices that don't actually take characters that die and then come back Radia goes away and comes back Palam and Porum and on and on Tell is like the only one that stays dead and if that's the case, I think that's really interesting. I think I could go two ways on that. There's kind of the Jack White school of thought that says if you're putting those kinds of limitations on yourself and you still manage to tell that caliber of a story, that's damned impressive. And then there's the other school of thought that's more cynical and says that's a contrived way to tell a story. And probably part of the reason why RPGs and video games in general started to get I guess you could say a bad rap, but certainly a reputation for character deaths not really 
meaning a whole lot because it seemed like there was almost always a way to undo them. I think I tend to side uh, with the, you said it was the Jack White way of thinking of it. Yeah, you only need three chords. Right. I listen a lot to Mark Rosewater, his podcast, Drive to Work. He's the head designer of Magic the Gathering, as I'm sure I've mentioned many times before, and he is of the same school of thought. He quotes the book A Whack on the Side of the Head by Van Eck. Restrictions breed creativity. He says this over and over and over again. He's been designing this game for over 20 years now. I think he's right in this. I think when there are restrictions, you have to find a way to say the thing you want to say and still be within the restrictions. One of the things I talk to high school students about when they're trying to write poetry, and they say, I hate writing a sonnet. I have to fit in this this stupid format. It doesn't mean anything. It's boring. I, I would prefer to just write free poetry. And I get that. But at the same time, forcing yourself into a specific set of restrictions makes you say a thing in a way you wouldn't have necessarily before. It makes you think about uh, the way you're saying something the second or third time. And usually the first, the first way we express a thought is usually the weakest. It's the second and third and fourth thought that, tends, that tend to be stronger. So I'm with you. If, if the uh, restrictions of the technology made them tell the story in a way they might not have otherwise, I think that's probably a good thing. Yeah, and it's funny because I believe that both Hironobu Sakaguchi and Hiroyoki Ito have gone on record recently and said that they believe that that's one of the reasons why the early Final Fantasy games are held in such high regard, in particular 4 and 6, talking about the restrictions that they had on them and what they were able to do uh, you know, inside of those restrictions. But I do also believe Sakaguchi came out and said that 15 was one of his favorites and he had nothing to do with that game. And that's a pretty cool thing for him to say. Getting back into another thing that Final Fantasy IV did different from the games before it as well in terms of its gameplay was it would tell story through gameplay mechanics. There's a little bit of people popping up and like short dialogue before battle in three, but there are like storyline fights that you cannot win in four. There's the whole Tella versus Edward sequence, which takes place in the battle screen, but isn't you know in any way a standard battle so there's a lot of those kind of fun and interesting things where they play with that we talked about you know when we were going through the plot the fact that there are plot elements like Tella not being able to remember his spells and so he's one type of character in battle then when you get to a certain part in the story he becomes this much more powerful character Rydia goes through a similar transition when she goes to the land of monsters and all of a sudden she's got all these awesome summons and it becomes a completely different character in battle. So it's really cool the way they use the characters and the themes and the plot of the game to reflect fun and different and interesting ways to play the game. So each of our player characters in Final Fantasy IV has a job, even though there's no real job system. And so each of those jobs has uh, unique skills, or if not unique, uh, you know, ha has its own set of skills. 
And this will get into something else we'll talk about when we get to the art a little more, but there are some differences between the Japanese version and the North American or Western version. Uh, Cecil the Dark Knight doesn't have a special ability in the North American version. I didn't learn until later that the Japanese or normal version has, uh, he has a dark ability, which drains him of some HP in order to deal damage, as Dark Knights are wont to do. Right. Cecil, when he becomes a paladin, would get white magic and the cover ability, which is a reactive ability that allows him to protect those who are injured, which is very Cecil of him. Uh, Kane's jump ability, this is the first time Dragoons got to jump. Rosa has the archer ability to aim, which would, uh, she would take some time to charge up her attack and then deal more damage with her bow and she's got white magic she's also got the prey ability which does not show up in the easy or north american version the prey just i think heals everybody some ridia i we already talked about ridia changing as she gets older one of the th changes is when she's young she uses white magic and when she's an adult she uses black magic in addition to her summons a fun gameplay to tell a story ability is tella that he has the recall ability that will occasionally let him cast spells that he does not have on his list, which is fun, but it's a random spell, so maybe eh, maybe not quite worth it. Be careful with that. Be careful with that. Yeah. Rand random magic has its drawbacks. Yang uh, is one of our few non-casters, uh, and his big ability is, is kick, where he flies across the screen and, and deals everyone damage. Edward has some gameplay mechanics that are story-driven. He will occasionally flee battle without being commanded to, though he also <laughs> yeah, has the hide command. to run away. Hide and yeah. run. <laughs> uh, and then he's got his songs, uh, and he can heal. Palamon Porum have their white and black magic, and then they've got the twin command, which will allow them to cast Mini Flare or Comet. Sid, another one of our non-casters, can, however, study the enemies and, and tell you their weaknesses. Edge, as our ninja, can steal, he can throw, and he's got ninjutsu magic. And then Fusoya is another sage-type character with uh, basically just a bunch of magic. So it's interesting to me uh, how, even though they didn't use the job system in this, they still kind of did, because all these characters could be placed in one of those jobs pretty easily. Rosa's an archer white mage, Tella's a sage, uh, even Edge is kind of a ninja thief. So I, I really I really dig that, and I think it's interesting that for the North American release they took away some commands. Just I, I assume to make it easier for you know us unlearned Americans to you know not have so many options. There's one thing: fight. Right. I I think also one of the things I really like about that, which is something that sometimes the series gets a hard time for, is that this story is very linear. And back then, I mean, the technology made it so that it kind of had to be. But in a way, as we've talked about in the adaptations episode, it would be very easy to adapt Final Fantasy IV into a movie or a TV show and have it go over mostly well. There's a core of a very good story and interesting characters and all of that here. I think the decision was, you know, we love all that Dungeons & Dragons stuff. We love what we've done in our first three games and the jobs and that idea of going out on an adventure. And we toyed with a linear story in two. What if we told a story where they're all D&D &D adventurers, 
they're all Final Fantasy three job class type adventurers, but they've lived their lives to this point. They they have their jobs, they have their classes, and we're going to step into the lives of these stories. It's like the reason why, you know, I think Dungeons and Dragons adaptations in live action have tended to fail because they don't embrace just the idea of, well, let's take the tropes and the characters, but then tell a very specific story of whatever we want with those characters. And I think that's what 4 does really, really well. The last gameplay thing I want to mention is a thing that I'm pretty sure is unique to Final Fantasy IV. Correct me if I'm wrong, but in various towns throughout Final Fantasy IV, you will run into Naming Way. Uh, and Naming Way is one of these rabbit people who live on the moon, the Hummingways, uh, that we mentioned an episode or two ago. And Naming Way will give you the opportunity to rename your characters. In Final Fantasy I, you named your characters at the beginning of the game, and the, those were their names throughout. And in Final Fantasy II, you could name yeah your four starting characters, uh, but that was it. And the other characters, like Joseph and Minwoo and them, they, they had their names. In Final Fantasy III, you could name your Onion Kids, but then those were their names throughout. This is different. And I'm not sure if it means anything, but it's certainly something to note. Yeah, I'm not sure either. I think there is a naming way somewhere later in the series that we're going to have to check on that. I'll have to to do a little bit of research and see what I can find. But I sometimes black out the fact that you could even mess with people's names in these games because I just never did any of that. Like, I never bothered to go in and change the names of any of the characters because, again, going back to my previous point, I just kind of accepted all of these things as linear stories that somebody else wanted to tell me. You're, you're telling me the tale of these people, and it goes how it goes. And some people think that's like sort of antithetical to the idea of a role-playing game. I'm supposed to be able to play a role in the story, and it's like, well, you, you kind of do. You, you do a little bit, but it's more about you kind of sitting back and enjoying what happens. So I'm all for it. But as far as naming goes, like that always threw it off to me. So I never looked around because I know there are items and stuff that can, I think, help you change your name in nine. We got to we got to find that out because I remember some other game where it allows you to change your characters names. But I just never wanted to do it. I always felt like that would take away from the experience. That's interesting because when we first played Final Fantasy VI, I remember renaming every single character. Not necessarily because I disliked the characters' names, but just because I thought that was interesting. I remember I renamed King Edgar John uh, because our cousin John, that was his favorite character. Uh, the ninja Shadow, of course, became Drew. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, that's that's interesting. I think it's a I think it's a fun idea that you could rename some of these characters. Uh, as we've talked about before, uh, these games are as much a representation of the thing as a depiction of the thing. Sure. Uh, it's it's almost like they're stage plays in and of themselves, and so like being able to rename them on the fly is, yeah. It, it again, I'm not sure it means anything, but it is something of note. So let's talk about the art of Final Fantasy IV. The first thing I want to mention is that uh, we, we've already talked about there were some differences between the Japanese and North American releases. 
One of those differences is that certain scantily clad characters, all women, uh, were censored in, in the US version. They were covered up to some degree. So I wonder if that means that the art design of Final Fantasy is maybe a little sexist, or if North Americans are maybe a little prudish. Or if the Japanese developers of the time believed that North Americans were a little bit prudish. I think it's somewhere in that realm. I think they were worried about, especially at the time in the 90s with video games sort of under attack. And this is far from Mortal Kombat or anything, but I think they probably just felt it best if they were going to sell their game to a wider audience that they, at the very least, hedged their bets on that one. Uh, it's funny because you look at it now and they're so primitive in a way. I mean, they're gorgeous in a lot of ways to look at, but the super, to think that anyone might be offended by a Super Nintendo graphic of a woman's midsection is pretty funny. Yeah, yeah. Well, and so I have a question for you on this because some of Amano's art is very revealing on some of the female characters. Rosa's outfit is... She's bare from her hips to her knees... Uh, her cleavage is very visible. Even Rydia a little bit, though the not so much in the child versions. Do you think that it is sexist to have some of these female characters represented uh, with less clothing than their male counterparts? I think, you know, it's a tough line to walk. I think to some degree they're trying to draw on, like all fantasy is, certain elements of real ancient history and that would be the type of garb that princesses might wear and so while the, the other thing that I always think is interesting about this too the conversation about whether or not the women are wearing practical attire is the degree to which magic and like statistics actually play a role in your defense it's like it, it, it's really not so much about the physical appearance of your armor because even like back in the day that wouldn't even change when you would literally change your equipment your appearance does not change i don't think that there was that you can certainly look later in the series at plenty of bare-chested barrel-chested men and certainly more moderately or even armored women Terra and Celeste come to mind though Celeste gets put into a dress at one point it's always tough for two guys to talk about this too of course but you know to definitively say one way or the other I think since it's not backed up in their theme and we could even jump all the way forward to the most recent I think the most glaring example of it really is Cindy from right. 15 and it would be tough if it was backed up by her being an airhead bimbo character who all the boys pined over. But that's not who she is. And I think that that, you know, really undercuts it and puts it more on the side of women can wear what they want. If they want to wear stuff that's revealing, that's entirely up to them. And the more important point is that everyone treat them with respect and i think the fact that the writers of final fantasy 4 went out of their way to make a clear character critique of their main character by having him act in a chauvinistic way and having the women say nah we're not standing for that kind of shows where their true intentions lie 
I think all that's fair. And you and I have disagreed about Cindy a couple times uh, in phone calls that did not involve recording them. (laughs) (laughs) I think everything you said is correct. I also think, though, that in Final Fantasy, occasionally female characters like Cindy and like Rosa are drawn in in an alluring way, or are, are designed in a way that uh, is almost certainly specifically tailored to straight males. And I don't think that's necessarily a negative thing. Okay. And certainly I don't want to pretend to know the motivations of the art directors. But I do think uh, when you have these... Uh, Svelte women in minimal clothing that shows off attributes that would normally be considered sexual, it, it does form a, a pattern. Now, that said, I think the other pattern that is formed is that these characters are all strong characters with a lot of agency who do what they think is right and are not simply vehicles for the male characters to progress their storylines, as you've already pointed out with with Cecil getting shot down by Rosa and Rydia at the end. And Edge, too. Edge is kind of a dick in that scene. Right. I do think that this is one of those, you said that they're maybe, you know, made to entice straight males. I'll push back on that a little bit because I think they're made to entice people. I think that, again, remember the types of stories that these are based on, the ancient fantasy myths like Hercules or you know, whatever it may be, similar to comic books. What are they based on? Similar types of stories. Superman, Wonder Woman. These are not unattractive people, and they're rarely drawn as such, both the males and the females. The more I get into the Final Fantasy community, the more I realize that, you know, I see way more often than men talking about how beautiful the women are is Female Final Fantasy fans fawning over Titus and Squall and Cloud and Noctis and modern versions of Cecil. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think a lot like the comic book characters and like the heroes of old, they're sort of meant to be these idealized versions of humanity, these near perfect versions but then we still have to find their flaws but they are still you know they're the warriors of light they they are you know in a way they're not beyond reproach by any means that's i think one of the things that all of the games does that's really great is bring them all down but i think it's you know okay for the heroes to be aspirational even in terms of the way they look and and then there's also just that basic thing of when you're trying to sell stuff to people you want characters that are appealing and when you're making characters that are appealing more often than not that's going to mean being attractive and for some people that's going to mean being sexually attractive and i don't necessarily think that there's anything wrong with that like you said as long as it's not cynically done just to get the attention of a certain you know demographic but I think if it's fair game, if it's fair use, like Titus is, Titus is sexy. I'll say it. He's a very pretty boy. <laughs> I'll say it. <laughs> All right. I'm not sure. I, I, like you said, a couple of straight white dudes trying to talk about marginalized groups can get a little dicey. What I do want to say to wrap this up, especially as the person who's kind of been like defending Final Fantasy here, is first of all that. 
for me, I do feel like, and, and I would love to be better educated on this perhaps, but it seems like there's a very fine line between she shouldn't be designed like that and she shouldn't dress like that. And, you know, I want to make sure that even from the perspective of feminism, that we're not degrading characters because of how they're designed. Uh, that'll be, I think, a bigger conversation when we get around to like Tifa, for example. And plenty of people of all genders and all persuasions are attracted to Tifa Lockhart. This will be something we get back to. But the, the big umbrella point is that there's a troubling history of character designs and fantasy and comic books and science fiction. And I do think Final Fantasy does sometimes fall into the trap of being a part of that history, of being a part of that tradition. And that means some of the, the flaws and issues that come along with that history and tradition. And this is definitely one of those. Representation is important. And, you know, while I was just talking a moment ago about they want their characters to be appealing, idealized Adonises, there's also a power in being able to alter what is an idealized body type, or different types of bodies, different races. And that's another thing that we'll talk about. This is a very white game, for example. All these characters, other than Yang, are pretty European and white looking. And so that's a conversation we'll continue to have as well. Uh, so while I'm saying I don't think the intentions of the creators were bad, that doesn't let them off the hook necessarily, or it doesn't mean that these conversations about representation aren't important. And of course, the final point being that, it, as we were just saying, it really isn't the place of any cis white dude to tell a woman how they feel about scantily clad character designs or a black person how they feel about way black people are represented in Final Fantasy or Asian people or non-conforming people, any of that stuff, like it's just, it's not our place to say. So throughout this podcast, we want to raise these questions because we think it's important and, and ignoring them, I think would be the wrong way to go. And of course we have to share our observations through our own perspective because that's all we can do, but we're tacitly incapable of answering these questions on the show. We have to bring them up and, and I think we have to talk about it. And sometimes, you know, we're going to say some things and I, and I just hope it doesn't make anyone, you know, feel if we're, we're always down to be better educated about any and all of this stuff to better understand if, you know, our perspective is maybe not lining up with a certain kind of reality or a certain history that's there. So while I'm often, I think, inclined to say, I don't think Final Fantasy is being racist or sexist or any of these things, pointing out these moments where they maybe could have done a little better, I think is important, especially for conversations moving forward. So talking about the art from an aesthetic view, there are some very cool pieces uh, done by Yoshitaka Amano for this game. One that strikes me is there's a neat piece with Cecil as a dark mage kneeling and he's, he's sort of resting on his sword point down. And then behind him is Cecil as the paladin with his sword out front. And 
the you know the scars are blowing in the breeze and they've got all the dangly bits that Amano likes to put on his characters. The Dark Knight's got these big old curving spikes that he likes to put on his characters. And it's really, because it's both versions of Cecil, it's really striking to me. I, I like it a lot and I think it exemplifies that light and dark motif that you see throughout this game between the overworld and the underworld, between the blue planet and the red moon. All these dichotomies caught up in this one image, I really dig it. In juxtaposition to that, something I really like is that the logo for this game, a little more intricate than the ones we had seen in the past. Well, and, and they didn't exist before, but is has That's a right. yeah, yeah. cane in it. It features Kane, not Cecil, leaning up against the lettering in his unmistakable Dragoon armor, which reminds you again that this is either a game about or a story about Cecil finding himself or one about his best friend Kane losing himself. And so right at its very heart is the conflict of those two images. And it seems like whenever you see images of Cecil and Kane, they're not quite facing each other. They're framed differently. I, I really love both of their character images, their design, their artwork by themselves, but whenever they're juxtaposed, I think it represents the very heart of the game. Another cool piece is the uh, the whale spaceship. It's <laughs> it's a really neat looking bit. It's just this giant whale shaped spaceship. You can see the uh, the fin in the back. It's it's black and red with sort of an underbelly of lavender color, and it's got the uh, the ribbing that you see on the the underside of like a big old sperm whale. I think that's a really cool piece. And then the the main characters themselves. Uh, of course, everyone gets a portrait. But in the main portraits, this is something that strikes me as especially interesting. Amano's artwork is is undeniably him. You look at a piece of Yoshitaka Amano artwork, if you know who he is, you know that piece. Or if somebody's trying to do a piece like him. And a lot of his pieces are kind of sketchy, by which I mean they look like he did a sketch of the character and then he did his watercolors over it. But especially in Final Fantasy IV, a lot of these character portraits feel unfinished isn't the right word, but maybe kind of ethereal, which yeah. I think lends to the, the overall feeling of this game. A lot of this story, as we've talked about, is sort of this grounded drama between nations and families. It's almost Game of Thrones-like in that way, but it's still got this element of mystery one of the first places you go is the the cave of mists right and then there's the the magical town of mycidia and then the moon is is over everything the crystals are there from the very beginning and and cecil's like cecil's cape and his hair and his hands and his feet are just sort of undefined in some of these pieces the dark knight version of it doesn't really have any defined lines to it it's all just the the dark watercolors cane He's got this scarf going off into who knows what. Rosa, her cloak covers a lot of her body and it's just sort of gossamer and ephemeral. Rydia and Tella both have similar things going on. The character portraits throughout, especially Fusoya as a Lunarian, they just feel... It's like two-thirds beard. Right. They feel like they're in a watercolor world. They feel kind of... Again, ephemeral or ethereal. It, 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 lends a, it lends a mood to, I think, the whole game 
when the artwork, when the art direction is is of that nature. Yeah, I agree. I think it's one of the things that sets it apart. In fact, I think what we're getting at here and is going to be reflected in the conversation about the music is a huge step towards something that's very difficult to define, which is what is Final Fantasy? How and why is Final Fantasy different from other stuff that is fantasy, from Lord of the Rings, from Dungeons and Dragons, from other things that are science fiction, which would be a problem more later? What makes this different? And I think this really ethereal, ephemeral, another thing that it does is it's drawing more on Celtic influences. Again, a big thing we'll get to in the music, but... A lot of the Tolkien-inspired fantasy comes from, as we talked about, pulling on a kind of European style of history. And when we say that, usually we mean English and German and French. This (laughs) is more Irish and Scottish in its execution. And it just draws on a different type of lore. There's a different folklore history to... Irish tales. And I think if you go back and watch something like The Secret of Kells, which I cannot recommend highly enough, it has a very similar ethereal, ephemeral. There's like a lot of whispering. Like I imagine, again, if we were to adapt this into live action, if I'm the director, I'm probably telling my actors, you know, it's okay to whisper a lot here and there. This can be a very quiet, like the sound direction would be quiet. The music would be what would carry the darkness and the etherealness, and you'd use a lot of the same music, but there's a, I don't know, a quietness almost to it, a melancholy subtlety to it, but it's, I think, a huge step into something that is uniquely Final Fantasy. We're starting to get away from the first three games, which were creative, but still derivative, to something that is really its own thing. There are a couple pieces I I want to talk about still. Cindy, Sandy, and Mindy, the Mega Sisters, have some neat art direction here. There's I think there's only one piece of them, or or one uh, piece of artwork of them. Cindy, the small one, uh, is definitely the small one. She looks like a child, and she she's got kind of the the tunic thing going on with. Uh, the, he like uh, Amano seems to like polka dots, but not uniform polka dots. Yeah. <laughs> Sandy, the big one, I'm pretty sure I got those right. Sort of middle uh, sized, but uh, around proportions. She's holding this sort of scythe looking thing, and then Mindy, the tall one, has a spear. She almost looks like a dragoon in a way, and she's got the long flowing hair, and and uh, and they're all in bright colors. And I just think they're it's a really nice character design. I've always really liked that. And then when they show up in it's 10, right? They show up in Final Fantasy 10. Yeah. And they've got kind of the bug motif going on. Yeah, just uh, really cool. The last one I wanted to talk about was Rubicant or Rubicante, depending on whether or not you have voice actors. He's, again, got this sort of... I mean, he's the, the fiend of fire, so he's going to have uh, an ethereal quality to him, but his cape is sort of going off into flames. His feet aren't quite finished. Uh, he's got this cool scowl, and he's blue and red. He's got a very vibrant color scheme. Just really cool art overall. Yoshitaka Amano, it cannot be said enough how awesome his art direction is. Yeah, I think two that I wanted to mention really quickly. I mean, you talked a bit about the character portraits. Rydia has always been a character design that stood out to me. One, because there are two of her. 
And the other is because she's just so green. I think she's a character that's so completely, you know, relates to one color. Her hair is green. Her robes are green. It helps really drive home that whole Celtic theme when she goes and lives in the land of the monsters. You know, she comes out in the DS versions. Her magic is green. And that adds to what you were talking about with the kind of blending together. Sometimes it's tough to tell where her hair ends and her robes begin. And uh, I just love that character design so much and everything about her. And we'll talk more about her in a minute because she got a great theme. But the other one is Golbez, which I find really interesting that you could be tasked with designing three different characters that fit into the same basic trope, Dark Knight, and make them all three distinct and interesting enough to the point where they last to this day. All three of those characters are in the Dissidia games. They're all popular. They all have interesting designs. Golbez in particular, I think the way that he represents, as we've talked about before, having no face. He's completely covered up, completely mechanized. The really elaborate embellishments on his dark armor, but those are on the edges, like you said, so that most of his body does that thing where it's hard to tell where one part ends and the other part begins. He's just this massive specimen to, to behold, and it's a, it's a pretty awesome character design. Let's talk about the DS version of Final Fantasy IV and the art therein. We've talked about in previous episodes how Yoshitaka Amano's artwork has to be really stripped down and maybe reinterpreted or maybe just flat out redone for the hero sprites uh, on Final Fantasies 1, 2, and 3. And the monster sprites are able to be more representative of what he actually drew. I think in Final Fantasy 4, the hero sprites, they are a good faith attempt to translate Amano's style into pixels. But the Final Fantasy 4 DS version really goes for it. I'm not sure if they do a good job or not, but man, they really go for it. The swirls of uh, Cecil's armor are present. The color scheme of Golbez's armor is present. Rosa's outfit that is almost skin-toned is present. The stripes on Palamemporum are there. Sid's big old beard and giant mouth and goggles are all there. Yang's polka-dotted pants. Edward's stripes and scarves and feathers. Man, they really, really went for it. How did they do, Drew? Um, A for effort? <laughs> C minus D plus for execution? I don't know. I know some people really love it, and so I don't, you know, if... I think it has a certain charm... And I went back recently and just watched like the hour long video of just the the cut scenes where there's the voice acting as well. And the voice acting is not great. It's not terrible, but, you know, it kind of is what it's serviceable. I would say it's serviceable. It doesn't ruin anything. But and that's kind of how I feel about the character designs as well. I would certainly prefer a modern, sleeker interpretation, like you see in the CG cutscenes that they added, that I think do a much better job of really showing what those characters look like and keeping that 
necessary ethereal element to each of them and they, they kind of flow and they're sleek and clean and, and there's just too many still hard edges in that DS version too much of it felt clunky and plastic and square and you know, this coming from a guy who's defended the original look of Final Fantasy VII over and over and over again. I'm going, it's too blocky. <laughs> um, but, right. you know, I think it's just in between. I think I prefer the way they looked on the Super Nintendo version because they looked more, I don't know, that's because the version I guess I played first and that's the, they looked more like themselves. <laughs> so that's maybe not fair. Maybe it's entirely biased and, and I'm willing to admit that just for the original version, but yeah, I'm not a huge fan of it. I think the other thing is this. At the time, the Super Nintendo version of Final Fantasy IV was one of the best-looking games that had ever been made. Right. It's hard to realize that now, going back and looking at it, but it really was something to behold. Nothing else had really looked like this before. For like, When you go to the moon, that was mind-blowing to leave the planet and see it from space and then to land on another celestial body in a Super Nintendo game. To watch that unfold was absolutely incredible at the time. And so when it was redone on the DS, I think I felt like it was just done with kind of the standard technology of the time, which made it, you know, average. And Final Fantasy IV's aesthetic should not be average, as we've been talking about. It's very important to the game. And, uh, you know, so the remake I'm fine with. I, I, I've enjoyed it. But I'd still, that's why I've said I'd actually be okay, even though it got a full 3D remake with another one. With a, uh, you know, on the PlayStation 4, Xbox One, or, you know, even with, like, maybe more stylized, maybe not like the Final Fantasy XV style graphics, but if you did... Maybe like uh, Nino Kuni, if you got people like the Studio Ghibli type of people. So it's still highly animated, but sleek, modern. Or like Persona 5, the, those Persona games, if you did it like that. So it looked more like an anime or animated adaptation so the characters could remain really strange looking and not have it feel like it's out of place. But there's a lot of great design in the visuals of Final Fantasy IV that I think could be brought into a modern age in a pretty cool way. And that's represented in the Amano artwork we've been talking about. Like, just do your best to bring that to life and then tell the story inside of it. And I think you can make money on Final Fantasy IV all over again. I'd buy it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we're marks. Yeah, I know, I know. So if I am correct in that some of this artwork is deliberately more ethereal than Amano's usual character designs. What does that mean or what does that say about or how does that inform how we understand the things that happen in the story of Final Fantasy IV? Is this an especially ethereal story? I think so. I think it reflects our big theme that we started however many episodes ago we started talking about this game. The larger threat, but not just that, the hidden threat. The old, you don't know what you don't know. Who's being mind controlled? How much of human destiny is being controlled by the Lunarians who we don't even know exist? How much of your own destiny, Cecil, do you really control? Or your own fate, Rydia? And so... I think the artwork absolutely backs that feeling up. Like you've been talking about 
the characters don't necessarily finish because they're not finished. Their stories are untold and ongoing, and Cecil still has character growth at the end of the game, as we've talked about. But they don't know all that much about their world, and their problems end up seeing incredibly trivial by the end of the game. Uh, at least the problems they had at the beginning of the game. And so I think that that's what the artwork really does reflect is this sense of mystery, this sense of wonder, this sense of, yeah, you may think you've got a grounded political conflict going on, but you don't know you're stuck in a fairy tale. So in a story about memory and the mind and destiny and fate and what we don't know we don't know the art direction has to be a little more what we don't know a little less finished i like that the characters aren't finished because they aren't finished That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening, and thank you to everyone who's reached out to us. Feel free to let us know what we missed, got wrong, or should have mentioned by reaching out on Facebook or Twitter at FFWeeklyPod, or you can send an email to FinalFantasyWeekly at gmail.com. Also find us on Patreon.com slash FFWeekly for more episodes and content, and be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Join us next time discuss the strength of character themes, setting the mood, and the eeriness of animated dolls. Again, thank you for listening, and remember that if you want to listen to the next 50-some-odd episodes all the way through the end of Final Fantasy VII, they are available on patreon.com slash ffweekly, and also our new show, Studio Ghibli Weekly, which is exactly what it sounds like. Also, if you're interested in more podcasts on Final Fantasy or other video games or Star Wars, comic book movies, professional wrestling sports got that all for you over at patreon.com slash dc productions